Well, if you're new with us this morning, we want to welcome you and uh, introduce you to the series that we've been a part of, that is uh, Jesus, the greatest of all time, looking through the New Testament letter of the book of uh, Hebrews. And we've been learning about how Jesus is greater and grander than anything we could ever ask for or imagine. And because as followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus is so great and so marvelous and wonderful, we need to continue to run, even though at times the road of life may be difficult and disappointing, and even times full of despairing moments and, and events in our lives, that if we will be faithful and run uh, the race that's marked out for us, this Jesus will usher us into uh, some of the greatest moments uh, that will come to us in eternity. And so we're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, the second half of this letter. And uh, for these last couple of weeks, we've been learning about this metaphor of running a race. But he's going to change the metaphor to that of mountains. And he's going to give two uh, contrasting mountains that we're going to learn about. And I think if we uh, listen to what he has to say, you are going to appreciate what is uh, shared in, in the moments that are going to come at the end uh, of the message. And so Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 18 and go through the end of the chapter. And what we're going to see is this motif or metaphor of mountains. Now, this isn't the first time that mountains have been talked about. In fact, the Bible is full of momentous occasions and events where uh, they took place on the top of mountains. Did you know the Garden of Eden was said to be uh, in the mountains? That when Adam and Eve were left there, they descended down into the valleys uh, that were below the garden. Did you know the Ark of Noah sat when it rested on Mount Ararat? Did you know that uh, when Abraham was going to sacrifice uh, Isaac, his one and only son, as a step of faith to God, even though God would provide a ram uh, for him to sacrifice, that would all take place on Mount Moriah. It would be on Mount Carmel where Elijah would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the prophets of Baal and in doing so vanquish them and prove once and for all for the nation of Israel that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was greater than any false gods that they could conjure up. The New Testament talks about mountains. Jesus would give his longest and most developed sermon that we have in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount and a high place or a mountaintop. And then Jesus would uh, exhibit and show his deity unveiled to the disciples on what is called the Mount of Transfiguration. It seems that every time there's this immense or, or great momentous um, a moment in biblical history, it, it surrounds itself on the terrain of a mountaintop. And I wonder if that's where we get this phrase, the mountaintop experience, this moment in time that transcends all other moments. And let's just be honest. The mountaintop experience is why we're willing to go through the valleys. Why we're willing to deal with all of the difficulties of life. For that one moment, that one time and place where it transcends all of the events and moments around us. That scene when the groom catches the eyes of his bride as she walks down the aisle. It's that gleam in the eye of a, a new mom who cradles her newborn baby for the first time. It's that graduate who's going to walk across the stage and receive their diploma. It's that athlete who wins the championship. It's that final performance when there's a standing ovation to the performer who has left it all on the stage. It's the business person 
who has worked hard to get the customer to finally sign off on the big deal you've been working towards. It is what makes the moments, the hard work in life, the perseverance pay off. But what about for us as believers? What is our mountaintop experience? For the woes that were being written to in this letter of Hebrews, they had experienced a lot of valleys, the valley of the shadow of death. They had been beaten down and persecuted. They had been uh, knocked around because of their faith. And they were wondering, what, what makes it worth it? Why don't we just give up and give in? Maybe today you find yourself being beat up from all sides and you're wondering, is Christ worth it? It sure seems that now the only thing Christ brings me in this life is a lot of turmoils and trials. But what the author wants to say today is hang in there, endure, persevere, keep fighting, keep running. Because there's a moment in time There's a place that has been promised to all who will run the race marked out for them that will make all of the difficulties, all of the trials, all the pushback and persecution that we face in this world, it will all be worth it. Peter said, in light of this promise of what God has for his people, that the trials in life will be be seen as light and momentary trials on the backdrop of what God has prepared and planned for his people. And the author is saying, we need to run, we need to walk this walk of faith with perseverance, because at the end, at the finish line, you and I will experience something so great, so awesome, that whatever we suffered in this life will be like nothing in comparison to the goodness and grace we're gonna experience. To do that, The author's gonna talk about a couple mountains and he's gonna contrast them this morning. And so let's look at our text and let's first of all approach these two mountains and as we approach these two mountains, we are going to see that these mountains are very different from one another. So as you write that down, we we approach these two mountains, let's read our text. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Let's stop there. So as we approach this text, the author wants us to approach two mountains, And as we approach two mountains, we're going to see the difference between the two. There's two mountains that are given. The first one is Mount Sinai. Now, we don't know that it's Mount Sinai because it's not labeled as that. But Mount Sinai is a mountain that we see being put together here in the text because it says that Moses is there, and that when Moses transcended or transversed the 
the mountain, he was full of fear. Now, Mount Sinai was a mountain that was well known to the Hebrew people. It was the Mount Rushmore of mountains for Israelites. This is where God would direct his people to go after the parting of the Red Sea, of course, after the great exodus out of Egypt. It would be there that the law and all of its commands would be given from Moses, or given to Moses from God. It would be there where God would allow his holiness to be seen in, in huge and awesome ways. Mount Sinai was a place that the Israelite people knew and knew well. But for us, Mount Sinai is a bit of a mystery. Mount Sinai is found today in the southernmost tip of the Sinai Peninsula, which is in modern-day Egypt. It's 7,500 feet in elevation. It means it's well over a mile high, and it stands amidst a mountainous area, as can be seen in the picture. And during those 40 days and 40 nights, it would shake and it would tremble because the presence and the holiness of Almighty God was all around it. And it would strike fear into all those who were encamped around the base of this mountain. But then he stops after declaring this first mountain that's well known. And he speaks of a second mountain, Mount Zion. And in Mount Zion, we have a mountain that's also known of great renown. Now, it's a much smaller mountain, only 2,500 feet high. About the third of the height uh, of that of Sinai. It's a mountain that's well known in the history of Israel. It would be first captured by King David in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It would serve as a site of worship. In fact, the tabernacle would sit upon Mount Zion for the first time that the Ark of the Covenant would be placed in the tabernacle. So this was a place of great importance for the nation of Israel. And so this would serve as a place of worship and a place of great festivities. Now why would the author speak of Mount Sinai and Mount um, Zion in the same passage? He wants to compare these mountains as we approach these mountains. So here we come and we walk up to these mountains and we have something to look at. What we're going to see is there's a great contrast between these two mountains. First of all, we need to see uh, the issue of insulation versus intimacy. As we look at these two mountains, we're going to see one where God is completely and utterly insulated from sinful man. And we see that within the text. The text says that God gives this command to Moses that no one is to touch the mountain. In fact, Moses is the only one who is given the right or invitation to uh, approach God on the mountain, even though even when he's in the presence of God, he's put within what the scripture says, the cleft of the rock, so as not to expose Moses to all of the holiness and presence of God, which would cause him, of course, to surely die. So we got this tall mountain. Not many people would be able to traverse this mountain but then we have Mount Zion, and it's this mountain of intimacy. It seems as if there's this welcome sign that the author is saying, you can come to Mount Zion, to the city, verse 22, of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where there are these individuals all gathered. Come, 
Come to the house of God. Come and be a part of all that's taking place. So Mount Sinai, you're set apart from God. Mount Zion, you're brought close to God. That's the first contrast. Second contrast or comparison. We have fear on Mount Sinai and festivities on uh, Mount Zion. Notice in verses 18 through 20. For you have not to come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken, for they could not endure the order that was given. The idea here is at the base of Mount Sinai, everybody's freaking out. They're afraid. There's thunder and lightning. All manner of sights and sounds are scaring the daylights out of the Israelites. They're hearing the voice of God bellow from the mountaintop, and they want nothing to do with it. They're as little kids, as loud thunder hits. They're closing their ears, trying to get away from the sound. I remember... Years ago, when my oldest son was young, we, we got invited to the truck uh, rallies, the monster trucks, and we went to the Rockford Metro Center with all the other hillbillies of the land, and we found ourselves in the truck rally. And unbeknownst to me, I had never been a part of the, the truck rallies before. I had no idea how amazingly loud that arena is, Okay. And so I have little Noah with me, and, and he is unaware of this. Where's my dad taking me? And all of a sudden, the first truck starts, and it gets louder and louder. Now I'm starting to notice around me why everybody has massive earphone or headsets on them to muffle the sound. And, and my poor little son, and I was feeling the same way, he was screaming, get me out of here. It is too loud, and of course, we're in like row 15 or seat 15 of 50 seats, and I got to carry this poor little kid. He's kicking and screaming, and I am wanting to cover my ears, but I'm holding him, and we never went back into the room. It was so loud. So this little PSA announcement for you is when you get invited to the monster truck rally, always protect your ears. You're not going to enjoy it. I can only imagine that that was the kind of sound. People covering their ears and saying, let it stop, let it stop. And that was the voice of God. They were afraid. But then we come to Mount Zion. And we don't see anything about fear, nothing about trepidation, nothing about uh, trembling. But what we see is this word, festal gatherings. These are exciting times. Now, this would be true and known of all Israelites at that time because the Israelite calendar was based on these festivities where everything would stop, your work, your toiling, you would go to Jerusalem and you would enjoy days upon days of food and fanfare, all pointed to announcing to the world That we love our God, how great is our God, and worship of this God. Do you see the difference? Fear, covering of ears, scared to death to enjoying the festivities of being around and in the presence of Almighty God. The third contrast. The third contrast is retribution and redemption. Notice that what the author says is when they approach Mount Zion... 
I'm sorry, Mount Sinai first, that everybody's afraid, including even Moses, which we'll address here in a moment. But notice it says in verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Now all of this around Mount uh, Sinai is recorded in Exodus chapter 19. And, And let's look at a part of the passage in Exodus 19. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it, for whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Now notice what he says. Not only will they be put to death, but no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, by the way, with an arrow, Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, then and only then shall you come up to the mountain. Why? Because the presence of God will have left. And so the idea here is that if you were to even come in any proximity, whether you were a human being or an animal, not only were you to be put to death, but because you had gone into an area that was unauthorized, even your manner of dying needed to be done by long distance, that you wouldn't even be in the presence of the person who had been in the presence of Almighty God. God says at Mount Sinai, I am not a God to be trifled with. Because I reside in total holiness and perfection, I cannot have in my presence even an ounce or a nano ounce of sin. And so if you approach me, you will come to realize what he means at the end of the passage saying in verse 29, our God is an all-consuming fire. Now that's Sinai. But we get to Zion And notice what it says. But you have come. The idea here, the author is saying, you have been invited. So you come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's a great cloud of witnesses that he talks about at the beginning of the chapter. And to God, the judge of all. Now wait a minute. God's there. And notice who he invites. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Why is it at Mount Sinai we can't approach, and if we do, we surely die, but on Mount Zion we can come, we can have intimacy, we can have confidence with God in his presence. How does that happen? The answer isn't in the mountain. Listen, it's in the mediator. It's in the mediator. If we affirm the right mediator, we have access to God. Now notice the first mediator. Two mountains, two mediators. The first mediator is Moses. Moses approaches Mount Sinai, and notice in the text what it says. It tells us that when when he approaches It says, it was so terrifying, verse 21, it was so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
Why does Moses tremble with fear? Moses goes up to the mountain and he goes up fearful because he's flawed. He's sinful. And he knows what God is capable of. He has seen God in the burning bush. He has seen God in the plagues of Egypt. He has seen God in the power of separating the Red Sea. He has seen God bring manna from heaven. He's seen God bring water from a rock. He's seen all of this transpire. And now he is seeing one of the highest mountains in all of the land be shaken to its core. And he's sitting there going, if I'm not careful, this amazingly powerful God could snuff me out in a second if he so desired. So with fear and trepidation, Moses, who had a good relationship with God walks up towards God into his presence, fearful that God would take his life. Then we have a second mediator. The second mediator is recorded in verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which is innocent blood. That Jesus' blood was even more innocent than that of Abel in the book of Genesis. The idea here is Jesus didn't go up a mountain to meet God, but Jesus came down from the mountain of God, that is heaven. He made his dwelling among us. He lived a perfect life. He died our sinners, our, our death, the sinner's death, He defeated death. He defeated the grave on Easter Sunday. And what he allowed is for you and I to be able to enter into the presence of God. That's why it tells us that Jesus is the author or founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And because Jesus has done this, You and I, therefore, notice in verse 19 of Hebrews 10, says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts wrinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What transpired is is we had a better mediator than Moses. Jesus, being the greatest of all mediators, the only true mediator between God and man, gives you and I the ability and the opportunity to be involved in a relationship with the holy God. That's why this book is dedicated to the excellencies and the greatest of Jesus because he is the greatest of all time. He has taken that which we should be filled with fear and trepidation and he has replaced it with the great promise and hope of festivities upon festivities in the house of God for all of eternity. Now what the author is trying to say is that following Christ will be worth it in the end. But let's not miss what is transpiring here, that what the author is saying is is that every one of us will approach one of these two mountains. 
we will approach mountain A, Mount Sinai, on our own or through the mediating of another sinful human being, may it be uh, Moses, may it be some person we hold up in high regard, we put them up as being the greatest of all time. When we approach God on that great and glorious day of judgment, God will banish us once and for all from his presence and send us to hell where there will be great fear and trepidation, weeping and sorrow for rebelling against the word of God. Likewise, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the mediator of mediators, the Christ of Christ, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, when we stand at the mountain in the presence of God, we will approach him as Mount Zion, this heavenly city where God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and receive the goodness and grace and the greatness of an eternity in the full presence and blessing of all mighty God. So the author is saying, which mountain are you going to climb? Which mountain is your mountaintop experience going to be about? The people that were leaving during the time of the book of Hebrews wanted to go back to Mount Sinai. They wanted to go back to the glory days of Moses. The author says that is the most foolish thing you could do. You have been invited to Mount Zion, the heavenly city. Now, what we've got to wait for is that day to come. In fact, this is what uh, the writer of Hebrews says about those who have gone before us in Hebrews chapter 11. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 16, but as it is, they who, those who by faith did this, by faith did that, he says they, he says, desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Where's the city? Notice verse 22 of Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. So what the author is saying is, to walk by faith may mean in this life we will experience difficulties and struggles But if we stay on the journey, if we run with perseverance, then there will be a day at God's choosing, in God's great timing, where he will usher you in to heaven to experience all that he has planned and prepared, which will knock our socks off. So, run the race marked for you, with perseverance, because in the end, it will be worth it. Now, the author of Revelation, that is the Apostle John, gives us a sneak peek of what this is going to look like when he tells us that every tribe, tongue, and nation will stand and they will um, make all kinds of rejoicing. Notice what the author says. He says, John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The only way you and I will be a part of that festivity of worshiping God in his presence is if we give our lives today to the only mediator who can make us right with God. That means we have to accept a mandate. Well, what's our mandate? Verse 25 gives us a mandate. Notice the command is right there, the directive. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Let's stop there. This is the fifth and final warning of the book of Hebrews. And it is so important that he finishes with this one because he says, after all that I've said about Jesus, are you going to listen to him? Or are you going to go your own way? Now notice he backs up this, this warning and he says, for if they did not escape, that is the people who died at Mount Sinai, when they refused him who warned them on earth, let's stop there, who warned them on earth? Moses. Moses and the other prophets warned the people, listen, God's saying, if you do this, you'll surely die. If they listened to the, if they were, I'm sorry, if they did not escape when they refused to listen to that voice, how much more, notice his argument, How much more now will we not escape if we reject the voice of him who warns from heaven? Who's that? Jesus. So here Jesus is speaking. Remember the beginning of Hebrews says that God has spoken in many times and many ways, but now in these last days he has spoken most fully and most completely in his son Jesus Christ. So Jesus is speaking, and what Jesus is saying is what he told the disciples in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now we have to ask the question, are we going to receive that? Or are we going to reject that? And I want anyone here who has never received the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of all, if you've never bowed the knee, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then the only thing, and I say this with all sincerity and love and grace, the only thing you can expect is a punishment far greater and worse than the worst one that was experienced at Mount Sinai. The Bible says if your name is not found written in Jesus' book of life, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. You have refused the voice of God, and on the day of judgment, there will be no sacrifice, but only the fearful expectation of fire and judgment, because you in your sin will stand before Almighty God, who is an all-consuming fire, and he will consume the enemies of God. And so the thing that you've got this morning is the breath and the life to say, Jesus, I hear your warning, and I will believe. You see, what Jesus is saying is we need to be attentive to his words. Jesus is saying right now, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. 
If you refuse that, the Bible says there's no sacrifice left for sins. And so you have to make a determination today is my prayer that you would say today, I will give my life to Jesus. Listen, before it's too late. Before it's too late. Now the author pivots and after he talks to those who are refusing to hear the voice of God through Christ, he turns to the believers in his midst and he says, but what about you? What about you who are fighting the fight and finishing the race? What about you who haven't given up on your faith? Even though you're being beaten down and, and knocked around, you, you, you haven't quit on God and you're fighting as hard as it is, as difficult as it is, you're, you're continuing on. What does he want to give us? Now notice he says, now that we've accepted the word of God, he says at the time his voice shook the earth, that is it shook Mount Sinai, but God has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. We know that hasn't happened yet. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so what the author says is, okay, Christian, verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let that sink in. If you are a child of God, then fear and anxiety, whether in this world or the world to come, is so completely counterintuitive to what God has for you. What he is saying is, as a child of God, you are unshakable. You are immovable. You are unbeatable. That's what Paul meant when he said uh, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus said when he said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. That's why Paul said there's no weapon that is formed against us that will ever prosper because in Christ we are unshakable. Now, here's my beef. I hang around a lot of Christians who are beat down, who are downtrodden because of the world that we live in. Oh boy, what are we gonna do? Oh my, do you see who's in the Oval Office? Oh my, do you hear what they law they passed? Oh my, can you believe the persecution? Oh my, oh my, oh my. That is contrary to what the word of God says we are. We are the unshakable kingdom of God. So listen, my fearful and anxious friends. Sickness can't shake this kingdom. Poverty and financial woes can't shake the kingdom. Persecution and pain can't shake this kingdom. The government, listen, Washington, D.C. cannot shake this kingdom. No law written against us can shake this kingdom kingdom. The devil can't shake this kingdom. Your sin can't shake this kingdom. Your past can't shake this kingdom. Nothing on earth, below the earth, above the earth can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. 
So the Bible tells us over and over again, write this point down and circle it. We are to act like winners, not like losers. So we've got to live differently. And if we act like winners, we're going to be confident. If we act like winners, we're going to be fearless. If we act like winners, then we are going to know if God is with us, then nothing can stop us from doing what God has willed for his people. And so in the here and now, that is how we live. We act like the winners that Christ has made us on that glorious Easter Sunday And what do we do then as a response? Notice the author says, therefore be grateful for receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us then offer to God acceptable worship. The only response we have is to worship this God who let us approach him without fear or trepidation but with confidence. But we're to do it, notice, with reverence and awe. Reverence, meaning the sense that God is greater and grander than anything in this world, and we are finite, so we understand he's out of our league. We are reminded with reverence that he is the God of Sinai. And so we very, uh, very uh, retrospectively, very humbly, God is not our buddy. He's not our pal. He is the God of the universe, the creator of our bodies and our souls. And we approach him with fear, that is respect for the place that he holds. But then awe starts coming in. And why is that awe coming in? Because this God who is so far off, this God who transcends our mind and our thinking, he sent his son Jesus to put on flesh and make his dwelling among us. He sent his son to come down the mountain to come and get us, to conquer our sin so that we would climb back up the mountain and be in the presence of God forever. And so we worship. Whatever we say and do. And if you get this idea that worship only happens when Josh and the worship team are up here leading you in song, then you don't understand what worship is. We are to offer each and every day our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is our spiritual act of worship. So the Apostle Paul says that whether we eat or drink, and whatever we do, we do all things to the worship, to the glory of our Father in heaven. So be worshipers who are overflowing with this deep sense of reverence and awe, the psalmist says we're going to have 10,000 reasons and more to praise the name of Jesus. Can we not, as the body of Christ, start with a handful of them which would overflow our hearts to thank Christ for being all that he is so that we might experience the goodness and grace of God in the heavenly city that he's building?